from Equality Arizona, you're listening to the Arizona Equals Conversation. I'm Gene Woodbury. I'm the Interim Executive Director at Equality Arizona, and each week on the show, I talk with a queer person living in Arizona about their story and their communities. Today's guest, Shay, is a friend of mine and a friend of Equality Arizona. She's also one of the founders, along with Celia, who we spoke to on a previous episode of the podcast, of a group called Arizona Trans Together, which meets at Brick Road Coffee every Friday night. As someone who grew up in Tempe and didn't have the first idea of how to find trans community, I'm constantly amazed at what that community has grown to be in honestly a really short amount of time. Shay dedicates a lot of her time to community building and to mutual aid, and it was really nice to get to know her a little bit better through this conversation. I feel like something I should preface going into this is that at a lot of points, it really is a trans conversation for trans people, and we even recognize that at the time, but it was special for me, and it's really cool to have that recorded here for people to listen to, because it's unique and it's important and poorly understood. Something else really special was getting to reflect on both of our first days on hormones, and something that makes that extra special is, even though we recorded this conversation almost a month ago, we're releasing it on June 1st, which is actually the fifth anniversary of the first day I started taking hormones. And so that's pretty exciting for me, and it's, it's neat how the timing lined up for this. It's also the first day of Pride Month, and that means it's a great time to support organizations like Equality Arizona and organizations like AZ Typo and 1 in 10 that Shay mentions later in the interview. And beyond supporting nonprofit organizations like us, it's a time to invest in community, to invest in mutual aid and direct support. We got to be there for each other. All right, let's roll the tape. Hey everyone, uh, my name is Shay. Uh, my pronouns are she or they. Uh, I don't have an official job, but I do a lot of organizing stuff with uh, EQAZ on occasion and uh, with something that I help start and I help organize called Arizona Trans Together. It's a nice little uh, community building project we've been doing for going on eight months now. Started with like 10 people and it's blown up to nearly 200 meet up at Brick Road Coffee every Friday, 6 to 10 p.m. It's been a lot of fun. Yeah, I I noticed that uh, there's been some nights at Brick Road where it's just full to the door and then people are out into the street, basically. It's definitely something that has grown a lot in a short amount of time. Yeah, it's uh, nuts. I think on Trans Day Visibility, we had 45 people there all at once. And that's like basically at capacity for Brick Road Coffee. Right. It's a really small space. Yeah, it's it's a nice size coffee shop, but it doesn't handle, you know, 100 people. It, it really doesn't. Yeah. <laughs> I, I love the space, though. Don't get me wrong. Yeah, I know. I love Brick Road. And that's where the group kind of got started, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, it started with uh, Celia, who was actually on this podcast a while back. And uh, myself, we started going to the Queer Zona meetups on Wednesdays. Yeah. And then um, we started meeting like other trans people there. 
and we decided to make a group chat on Discord. And then, like, as soon as we hit the max limit, 10 people, we were like, hey, what if we start doing our own thing? And, like, why don't we just, like, meet up on Fridays? Because, like, trans people desperately need to, like, their own, like, community space. Yeah. Uh, it's not that, like, queer people in general are, like, transphobic or anything. However, sometimes as a trans person, you have to deal with cis nonsense. And that's a lot of emotional labor. And uh... Yeah, it, it is. I, I think I want to dive into that a little bit. Not necessarily just, like, how cis people can be tiring, but just that idea of, like, where the need comes from mm-hmm. and whether it's being served by other groups or if there was just kind of not not enough before you put this group together. Oh, I mean, I, I was the person who, like, approached Celia to, like, start this whole thing. And yeah. uh, the reason I came at it was kind of personal, actually. Like, uh, is, when I came out, things got extremely difficult for me. And um, until I met Celia, I didn't really know any other trans people. Like, Celia was the first person I started hanging out with that was trans and shared a lot of the same experiences as me. So, like, um, I've noticed in the eight months that we've been uh, doing AZTT that story is very common. A lot of other trans people didn't know any other trans people. They're basically, like, alone. And, like, I have people coming up to me even now saying that, like, I'm so glad that y'all started doing this. And I try to tell them it's like all of us doing this because it's a community, you know? Yeah. And I I think that's actually kind of key that it's, it's not just about being the one person. It's about finally not having to be just one person. Yeah. I, I definitely had that same experience where coming out was like, okay, well, I know things from the internet and now here I am. And how do I find anyone? How do I find people? And clearly, I mean, there's a lot of trans people, but there also aren't that many of us. No, I think we're like, what, basically 1% of the population at a high like estimate yeah. and like low estimates is like 0.5% of the population. Yeah. So yeah. it's something where there's no real natural community formation and we have to go out and do that in a proactive way. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, I love the community out in Melrose and stuff, but, like, a lot of things are very cis-gay-centered. And there's nothing out there that's, like, trans-centered, out, at least outside of ASU. There's a lovely group called TransFam at ASU. And I've uh, yeah. been talking with some of the people there. They have a nice, thriving community as well. And actually, we're planning on potentially collaborating and stuff in the future. Because yeah. once be cool. you graduate from ASU, where do you go? Yeah. Well, that that's the thing, too, is that if you find a support group or you find a mm-hmm. group at a school or a university, you typically age out. I remember when I was up at NAU several years ago, like really early in my transition, I joined a trans support group mm-hmm. and realized that one of the big problems with support groups is it's people who are one to two years into their transition max, and then by the time... They're a little farther into their transition. They don't really feel like they want to be in the support group anymore. So it's a lot of people who are really early on talking to people who are also really early on. And you don't get that intergenerational aspect of, of trans community. Nah. Uh, I, I won't say that, like, AZTT doesn't offer support. And, like, one of their one of our, like, most important values is, like, 
building community. And a lot of that, of course, implies a lot of mutual aid, a lot of building support networks between each other. We've had people that have faced um, homelessness that have been able to find like places to stay mm-hmm. temporarily, sometimes permanently with each other. Uh, it's <laughs> an, an unfortunate reality for a lot of trans folks, like how bad things could be. Like um, after I started hormones, actually, like I was living with my best friend while I was going to college in Bakersfield, California, and I was immediately kicked out. Mm. I uh, was lucky enough that I had a friend who runs a YouTube channel, uh, made a video about my situation and got me out of like the shelter circuit. This was all in California? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I'm jumping around subject to subject here. It's okay. I, <laughs> I think it's important to bring all that context into one thing because yeah. what I was kind of talking about with support groups is support groups that are like, let's all talk to each other instead mm-hmm. of support networks that are like, let's find ways to actually actively help each other. Yeah. And that's never as simple. It's It's always responsive and reactive and... It's hard to centralize it in a real way Mm -hmm. and still provide the kind of support that we need because for whatever reason, people don't really want to help trans people out in those situations. Yeah, a lot of there there are good resources out there for trans folks, but a lot of it cuts off at uh, 25. Right. Uh, It's kind of just how fundings work with a lot of like nonprofit organizations, which makes sense. Like trans youth experience, like pretty heavy disproportionate like um family rejection is a big problem yes and youth homelessness is a big problem yeah and so i get why there's going to be big agencies that can support that community but then if you're a trans adult i think a lot of the time people kind of will look at us and say "Uh, i don't really want to get involved Society kind of like sees these things as individual problems rather than systemic issues, of course. But like the lack of support for trans adults is a systemic issue, a hundred percent. It is. Yeah. And in my experience, I think it's these mutual aid networks that really meet the need mm-hmm. most of the time. And you had that personally in California to a certain extent, and then you're also working on building it here in Arizona. I, I didn't have that in Bakersfield at oh, all. Okay. Like in Bakersfield, okay. I was on my on my own. Yeah. Uh, I was living with a best friend who had met working at Subway. We'd known each other for years, but uh, apparently she wasn't as accepting of these things that I, as I thought she was. I see. So yeah. I told her that I was trans. Everything seemed mostly fine, but as soon as I started hormones, I guess it became real. And right. yeah, I was out the door at that moment. I uh, ended up living with my mom for a while. She took me in, but um, the difference... Between my mom on the phone versus my mom in person was huge. Uh, Over the phone, she was like, yeah, I'm really happy to have another daughter. I'm super happy for you. You're finding yourself in all of these things. And as soon as I got to her place, it was like, why are you dressed like that? You look weird. Like, Oh, yeah. You'll always be my son. Dead name. Dead name. She was also outing me to all of my family. And I was like in a very vulnerable place at the moment and the only person yeah. i thought i can feel safe around was my mom and that didn't work out <laughs> that's really hard yeah it was so bad like i decided to go to shelter go to a shelter and that was just as bad if not worse 
what is the system like in that part of California in Bakersfield? Uh, in Bakersfield, Bakersfield's a small town. Uh, they did have a uh, nice like queer uh, center there. Uh, I actually got uh, clothing swaps. My first like gender affirming clothing oh, from cool. one of those like places, but it was also very young, and I was older, so I felt I kind of out of place, you know. Like mostly like younger kids, and like people who are like under eighteen. Okay, yeah. yeah. So like uh, when I was like figuring myself out, like before I started like hormones, before like I officially came out publicly, I went to one of these like support groups for like trans people and people that were like questioning. Mm-hmm. yeah and uh i'm not gonna say like the community was bad or anything i got a lot of like really good help there that's good i also just different different lives different experiences different generations you know how it is yeah it, it can be <laughs> hard to find the right fit i think mm-hmm. plus like support oriented groups are a lot different than community like oriented groups yes so like as you were saying earlier like a lot of these people tend to be, like, within their first couple of years of transition. And uh, the whole thing with, like, community spaces is, like, there's definitely, like, a support aspect there. But also, you're building a space where people can are free to, like, be themselves. They're away from, like I was saying earlier, cis nonsense <laughs> is a polite way to put it. Like, you can just be. You don't have to worry about, like, all the bad stuff that's going on in right. the world. You have a place to escape to for a while. And it's nice. It's it's critical, I think. Yeah. We can't just always try to fit into cis society. No. Right? It's not going to work. And I really do feel like there's a degree to which people look at trans adults as sort of untouchable, I guess. Like, let's not actually engage too much here if we need help. It is frustrating, and I think that the kinds of mutual aid support that we engage in, whether that's like sharing hormones off prescription and things (laughs) like that, aren't necessarily palatable to the cis population. It's definitely not. Like, you're sharing medications? Like, you're supposed to go get that from a doctor. I'm like, this is life-saving treatment. Right now, sippy, sorry, Estradiol sipionate is on a shortage. That stuff isn't going to be, like, available for months. Right. So, like, who do you go to when you need your medication? Pills aren't working out for you. The patches didn't work for you. There are people that end up, like, stocking things up. So, like, yeah. you can get your medication while you're waiting for estradiol sipionate to finally be available in, like, pharmacies again. Right. I'm also a huge supporter of, like, DIY HRT as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, that gets... <laughs> a lot of people have different i mean uh varying opinions on that yeah and but i think there's also different contexts in which to have those opinions right exactly in a lot of places there's absolutely no informed consent clinics you have to go through this like extremely uh what's the word i'm looking for um it's a lot of gatekeeping. rigorous gatekeeping type things like a lot of it was instilled by wpath a lot of it's blanchardian uh, you have to live yes. two years as your quote-unquote desired gender before you, they even think about potentially prescribing you hormones. Yeah, and that was you have the to, norm until not that long ago. Yeah, thank thank God for informed consent clinics. Right. 
the the thing about like Arizona though, there's only two cities in the entire state that have informed consent clinics, and that's Phoenix and Tucson. I think the Phoenix area has some, not not just in Phoenix proper. No, uh, basically just Phoenix. There's something in mm. Tempe, but that's only for ASU students, and it's oh, good that they have that. But like. Uh, there's somebody on Twitter named Aaron Reed who built yeah. this informed consent clinic map. And oh yeah, that map is out of date. Is in it? Arizona? Oh okay. Yeah. I'm glad things are better. <laughs> yeah, they are. That that map is out of date. There's there's quite a few clinics. Good, now. good. Yeah, yeah. But even if Arizona is getting better, there's still places in the world that are not absolutely or in the, the in the country. In the States, yeah, places in the in the country that aren't that great either like they're banning hormones in like tennessee florida all these other places where do you where do you go to get your life-saving treatment exactly but i think the problem is people will look at those bills or actions like the attorney general in missouri and Mm -hmm. say well this is terrible but then they still missouri thank you i said tennessee i meant missouri tennessee has its (laughs) own nonsense happening so I, i don't blame you i i think that like People will look at that and say, oh boy, this sucks. Mm-hmm. But then they're still not going to feel comfortable with people who are sharing stockpiled estradiol. It's still something where, like, no matter how much people have a lot of empathy for us, I think there's some inherent queasiness around actually engaging in community support networks. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's... I kind of understand their perspective but i don't think cis people in general understand like the dire need for like our health treatment like we have one of the highest like suicidality rates of any demographic and a lot of that is brought on by like dysphoria or uh the treatment that we get uh by cis society at large like hormones for some of us, anyway, because, like, not every trans person is, is on hormones, and that's, like, totally fine. I am uh, not a trans med. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but right. for a lot of us, like, that is enough to make us, like, feel happy, feel like we're finally, like, getting the body that we uh, want. Uh, we can finally see ourselves in the mirror again. Or for the first time. <laughs> I, th- I think that's a great thing to point out, yeah. Yeah, and... It sucks when you don't have, like, uh, the treatment that you, like, desperately need. And, like, that's one of the important things, again, about, like, building these, like, building, like, these, like, transcenter communities that also have some sort of focus on, like, mutual aid and, like, community support. Because when shit gets tough, who do you go to, you know? Like, yeah, people are going to get queasy, but the people that understand your struggle aren't. Yeah. And I... I don't want to come across as some kind of like isolationist or anything. Yeah. But I think it's just the reality of, of how things play out for us a lot of the time. Yeah. So when you were in California dealing with a, a pretty difficult situation of friend rejection, some family rejection, at what point did you decide to move here to Arizona? I actually moved to Tucson with my mom. Uh, she she's lived in Tucson for like years. I actually lived in Tucson for a couple of years when I turned nineteen. Okay, so the decision yeah. to come to Arizona was 
when you moved in with your mom. Yeah. Okay. And um, the decision to move to Phoenix, I was actually given a couple options after uh, my friend made that video. I could have moved into Washington with somebody that I know, also in the YouTube circuit. I, I decided not to go there, despite how amazing Washington is in, in regards to, like, trans, like, uh, everything. But, like, she was dealing with a abusive situation at home, and I don't think I would have been able to manage that. For the record, she's out of that situation now, and things are going a lot better. Oh, good. good. Uh, just, just to clarify. But another mutual friend of ours uh, ended up, like, messaging me on Discord, because everything runs on Discord these days. <laughs> And uh, it was like, hey, I live in Phoenix. I'm like an hour and a half from you. I can pick you up uh, this weekend. Do you want to come stay with us? And I did. And I was there for eight months, started doing things with like Food Not Bombs, met some other wonderful people. And I've been uh, living with them ever since. The situation with the people I moved in with was much better than where I was at in Bakersfield, much better than when I was with my mom in Tucson. But, like, not everybody was okay with the trans thing. Oh, really? Even uh, even at that point? Yeah, it was a much more supportive, like, uh, place. Much more supportive than I've ever been. But it wasn't perfect. Yeah. Yeah. Moving between states and between cities as a trans person means reestablishing care in mm-hmm. each new place. What was that like for you? Actually, really easy. Oh, really? Because uh, Aaron reads informed consent map. Oh, perfect. Yeah. yeah. So, um, uh, when I was in Bakersfield and I was like, uh, I had like an extra week to stay in uh, that house before I had to leave. Uh, I was lucky enough that they gave me that extra time. Yeah. I messaged my doctor on like the the app that we use for medical records, all that kind of junk. Told her that like, hey, I'm gonna be homeless. I'm going to be moving uh, in with my mom uh, in Tucson, and uh, it would be really awesome if you can give me, like, an extra, like, write me a refill for my hormones so I can have them when I'm, like, moving, because I don't know how long it's going to be until I can see a doctor again. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And uh, she did that. I was able to pick up a 90-day supply, and uh, I was down there for maybe a month and a half. I was still doing good. And then I moved to Phoenix, and I made sure I got a doctor appointment like as soon as possible, oh, nice. and was able to uh, continue things. Yeah, that's pretty seamless. Yeah. Then yeah, no, no issues. In- informed consent is a godsend. It really, it really is. is. <laughs> <laughs> it really is. Yeah. yeah. No, it's true. Informed consent is so. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I I'm just thinking about like my experience of trying to find hormones over several years and not really being able to make it work and then finding a place that did informed consent here in Phoenix. And that was where it was able to actually work out for me. And a lot of the time I would call and they just didn't really do what I thought they did based on their website. Yeah. There's definitely places like that. Yeah. Informed consent with conditions. Yeah. And there's still just a general sense of, hey, if you don't have the perfect trans story, we're going to throw up some roadblocks. And the place I found that was a real informed consent clinic, that wasn't the situation. Mm -hmm. That's not really the situation at most informed consent clinics. 
But it is historically the problem that if you don't have like a clear and consistent narrative going back to when you were five oh, yeah. years old or whatever. There's definitely still like even in informed consent isn't perfect. Like I said, like informed consent with conditions, uh, a lot of uh, cis doctors especially don't understand like progesterone, for instance, is a extremely vital part of like trans like feminine like healthcare and unfortunately the research on a lot of these things isn't uh up to par funding for it usually cuts off at like two to three years so that's when they say like estradiol like stops working and like uh with progesterone there's like little to no research at all however there have been multiple research papers that have been written about like progesterone and its potential and um they argue it in a uh, very interesting way, because, like, for cis women, like, progesterone is a natural part of, like, their hormone cycles, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, the whole reason HRT works is because we have the exact same receptors in our bodies. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Underappreciated fact, for sure. Yeah. Like, cis women still have testosterone because they need it. Cis men still have, like, estrogen in their bodies and progesterone as well, like, some natural levels. They're definitely suppressed, depending on, like, if, like, testosterone or estrogen's dominant in your body. Yeah, there's different balances, but... Yeah. We're all basically working with the same chemistry. Exactly. So it doesn't make a lick of sense to say progesterone has absolutely no benefits. If we have, like, the same type of chemistry in our bodies, maybe one hormone is dominant than the other, why would it not make sense for if you're changing which which hormones are dominant in your system that another one that's also vital not be included in your health care? <laughs> so I think this gets to something that a lot of like cis people listening to this podcast won't necessarily understand or be familiar with. Yeah. Is that for many, many trans people, especially trans people who transition medically, we have to know a lot of things so we have to learn a lot of things because in many cases doctors have a certain knowledge set that they've gone Mm -hmm. into it with and we need to make sure that they're up to speed yeah it's not something most people are used to i think maybe people in like disability communities but in general this is not really a well understood experience so when when we talk about this stuff it comes across like these people are nerds about transition and it's just like no actually i like to think that i know a lot but there's definitely people in the community that know this at an endocrinological level beyond what i thought was even possible yeah like (laughs) i've been in those conversations and honestly i get to a point where i'm like if my doctor gets it a tiny bit wrong I'd rather just not put in this level of work and let my doctor get it a tiny bit wrong. I'm fine with that. Yeah. But overall, I think, you know, people people make sure to educate themselves so that they know if their doctor is, is getting it right mm-hmm. or if they have to be in a DIY situation that they can be safe and get it right. Where do you learn these things? <laughs> Through community. Yeah. There's a lot of like forums online that talk about all of this stuff and a lot of people that are very well informed on the science behind this. You could read all like the research papers. Like in-person community is v- vital. Online community itself is vital. I don't think it typically like uh matches up to like real life community. But 
yeah, like talk to other trans people. They know what they're doing. They've done the research, especially if you're new. Like your community is here for you. That's the whole point. We help us. Yeah. Yeah. Just... The the online community, in person community bridge is interesting. I think Discord is doing a pretty good job of mm-hmm. blending those together. Yeah, that was like kind of like Celia and I's like whole idea behind like having like the Discord and the in person group. Mm-hmm. A lot of people tend to have social anxiety things like autism or other like neurodivergencies i myself have autism and uh there are plenty of people that prefer the online space than prefer the like in-person space uh like we were saying earlier brick road is a small place it can get very loud and overstimulating so some people will opt in for like the online space but because we're in so close proximity to each other we can still like help each other out we can I've still also, build friendships. We can still build like support networks built with each other, build relationships, and uh, be there for each other. I've also seen that there's a pretty great. Well, I've seen a lot of people be very open about managing their sensory needs and stimming and things mm-hmm. like that in the group. Like it's it to me very often feels like just as much of like an autism community meetup as a trans community meetup. And I don't mean that in a critical or judgmental way at all. I I think it's also rare, just like trans community Mm -hmm. is rare in person. There's actually like quite a huge like overlap between like having autism or just being neurodivergent and like also being trans. Like when it comes to like the cis, um, neurotypical no actually like yeah the cis neuro i feel like that's the right (laughs) word yes i'm just like struggling to put it together uh (laughs) so like uh 15 percent of like all trans people tend to be like uh neurodivergent or autistic i think like it's 15 percent autistic and that's not nearly the same for like cis people I, I don't know the statistics, but I know it's vastly lower, and that's the important part. Yeah. Yeah. It's probably because, like, the reason why, like, uh, AZTT might be, like, mostly, like, neurodivergent folks is because we've done literally everything by word of mouth so oh, far. Yeah. We're sure we're on the Brick Row Coffee, like... Uh, You're on the calendar. Calendar and website, but you have to go into the shop in order to see that. And right. most people have ended up, like, bringing friends or bringing partners... Or just, like, talking to people online, like, hey, I found this community. It's been really fun. It's been a great help to me. You should go to it, too. Yeah. Yeah. I find that with that overlap between neurodivergent people and trans people, that's something that gets deployed against us a lot, especially at younger ages, to keep us from being able to transition or express our identity. Just like in Missouri, right? Like, they're... They're adding on a ton of conditions uh, to gatekeep people away from, like, HRT, right? Yeah. Like, there's still a very small subset of people that can get HRT, but it's, like, written in a specific way to, like, make sure you don't get it. Like, if you have autism, you don't get HRT. If you have depression, which tends to be a huge Yeah, it's written that you need to resolve your depression and anxiety before you can transition. Well, how are you supposed to do that? No, they fundamentally don't understand what, like, dysphoria is like. Yeah. So they're just using this as a way to keep us away from our yeah. medication. Fortunately, that's been 
held up in court, at least for now. Mm -hmm. But I wonder for you, was autism something that you grew up with a diagnosis for? I uh, actually got diagnosed with ADHD when I was like three years old. And this is before 2013. Uh, In 2013... I mean, uh, before 2013, actually, you couldn't get a dual diagnosis of ADHD and autism. So that's a fairly recent thing. When I was in uh, college, I was, uh, like I said, going through through, uh, those support networks for uh, queer people. I was also, like, getting therapy and, like, seeing a psychiatrist. Because during that period of my life, I was... uh, Dealing with a lot of mental health stuff. Mm-hmm. It's definitely been a lot better now. But um, through working with my psychiatrist and working through my therapist, like, they ended up giving me a autism diagnosis as well. Okay. Yeah. Very bluntly, did that cause problems when you decided to transition? No. Okay, that's good. Yeah. <laughs> I, for me, I did get pushback from mental health professionals. Not in a way I expected, and not at a time I expected. My very first doctor in Bakersfield was amazing. I only saw her twice, but like I told her that like, hey, I'm trans. I'm looking to get HRT. She didn't ask me a bunch of weird questions like they did at a couple of the other doctors' offices here. They're like, okay, cool. I want you to sign this paperwork. And here, let's explain like what HRT does. These are mm-hmm. the permanent things. These are the risks. Uh, if this is something what you you want to do, I'll get you your hormones today. It was super easy. That's great. Yeah. And I was already doing the work through like therapy and like the mental health stuff and through like the support group with like the queer center in Bakersfield. Yeah. I didn't need a doctor to give me a diagnosis to know that I was trans. It took me a while to figure right. it out myself, even though I probably always knew. Uh, but That's the duality, I think. I always knew, but also it took me 25 years to figure it out. Trauma whatever. keeps you repressed. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And when you finally work it out, things start falling together. Yeah. So it was in 2019, October 9th. I remember the exact day. I remember walking to the pharmacy, being extremely excited. I had a water bottle in my like uh, backpack pocket and I was like, I'm not even going to wait till I get home. <laughs> <laughs> Just taking my meds here and now. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, I, I, yeah, I, I had a very exciting first day on hormones also, uh, June 1st, 2018. So uh, it's a month until that'll be five years for me, which is exciting. Damn. But it was the same kind of thing of like, okay, this is it. This is the day I've got these. I'm going to pick up my prescription right now. Um, it was fun, but yeah. Okay. I think I'll ask one thing and then we can we can wrap up but sure you mentioned like with the queer center and in some other places and even here and with like nonprofits that exist to provide resources a lot of the time it's to a younger demographic Mm -hmm. do you feel like there's um well i guess for me i feel like sometimes what happens is people infantilize trans people and they really only want to deal with trans people as like kids so whether it's actual kids or younger people or just kind of seeing us as like ah it's so cute that you're trying a thing do you see that too see 
I got, I got really complicated feelings about that. Like, there, there's definitely an issue with infantilizing of, like, trans people. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's also a duality to that because, like, at the same time, you have all of these conservative talking heads calling us, like, groomers and pedos. Right. It's ridiculous. I appreciate the help that, like, trans youth and queer youth are getting because it is yeah. vital like you were saying, family rejection is a huge thing. There are people that kick that get kicked out of their homes. Uh, there's somebody in our group even that was like kicked out of their home and was in foster care. Luckily, they found like a not perfect but pretty good space. That's and good. Uh, as soon as they turned eighteen, they've been hanging out with us. But like, I I don't really know how to word that. Uh, it's a kind of tangled up idea yeah there's there's just a lot of variables and a lot of different things and like it's kind of hard to like abstract the uh the zeitgeist of it all when i know like different like community i mean uh different demographics like versus your conservative and your democrats for instance like think much differently more liberal minded folks definitely infantilize not just trans people but every marginalized marginalized group actually that's a great point yeah yeah um more leftist folks focus more on like solidarity which is like very important and like taking charge of like your own shit which i appreciate a lot i think you're also right that this isn't something that can be totally abstracted it just comes down to actual literal people in specific communities and situations yeah like the people at brick road uh the people with some of the other like nonprofits and stuff that I worked at, everybody's been super cool. Yeah. But like in general, there's, there's definitely that like infantilization, but it's not just directed to trans people, all, all marginalized groups. Yeah. Yeah. Do you, do you feel like the kind of support that exists for the trans community is getting more robust over time or that there's still a long way to go? Um, both. Yeah. Unironically. I think it's getting better. I think a lot more stuff is like coming out of the woodworks. I still think there needs to be a lot more. A lot of these things are also like charity based, which isn't necessarily bad. They're still helping people and yeah. like people need help. But there's also not enough. You know, like uh direct aid is like the most important thing. Housing, jobs, uh, those kinds of stuff. There's lots of housing discrimination. Uh, there's a lot of job discrimination. And you add those two mm-hmm. things together, you end up with people that become unhoused. And if you're trans and you're unhoused, especially if you're a trans person of color, it's a death sentence. And people don't understand that. It's um, very scary. <laughs> I uh, do my best to try and help out the people here. I'm thankful that, like, I'm in touch with a lot of, like, uh, nonprofits that can help uh, in times of need, especially for the younger folks. But if you're an adult, though, it's much harder. And that risk does not go away as an adult. I mean, uh, as an adult, it's still still, just as dangerous. What are some of the groups that you've been involved with to help out? AZ Typo. Uh, mm-hmm. one in ten, um, and uh, <laughs> that's basically it. And some honestly. of the groups that help out with like um, unhoused people, right? Yeah, it's it's very complicated though, because like the shelter circuit is not trans friendly. A lot of these mm-hmm. places are religious, you know. Uh, they 
are it's not just that they're religious there's a lot of religious folks that are very like queer accepting but like totally they segregate by like assigned gender at birth uh there's no accommodations for like trans people um they don't care (laughs) they think they know what's best for you and that's how they operate like sometimes like you, you need the help but it's never enough it's never like right there's definitely places that are better, but um, most of it's kind of shit. It's good at an emergency, but <laughs> yeah. Uh, if you go to a place and like everybody is harassing you because of who you are, and the staff there don't do anything to help you in those like times of need, like what would you rather do? And the shelters are already overtaxed, right? There's a shortage. Yeah, there's there's a whole reason. There, I mean, there's a big reason why there's hundreds of people out in like the zone around Cass. You know. Yeah. Like, they're overtaxed. COVID has done a lot of things. Uh, gentrification is running rampant in um, the Phoenix metro area. Rent prices are going up. People are losing their homes. People on disability can't afford rent anymore. Marginalized people get fired from their work uh, for being who they are and um unless you're unless you're renting a place with like four or five different people and you're all pitching in like it's the only way you could make it work or if you're lucky enough to come from economic privilege right yeah but that's not even always a guarantee for trans people if you can't depend on your family of origin yeah for support a lot of the stuff it's really close to home for me so mm. like uh i want to build a safe fun place for people i also want to give people the resources uh to like build this like self-helping community uh that also like self-organizes that like we are encouraged to help each other out and i'm glad it's going in that direction yeah i think you're doing great work Thanks for talking with me for the podcast. <laughs> yeah, sorry for getting a little, uh, you know. No, uh, I'm, I'm glad you did. Sick. Yeah. <laughs> and thanks for having me on. It was a lot of fun. Totally. I'm glad you enjoyed it. Thanks again to Shay for being my guest on this week's episode of the Arizona Equals Conversation. We're always looking for new people to interview. So if you'd like to be a guest on a future episode of the podcast, just send an email to hello at equalityarizona.org. Thanks for listening, and I'll talk to you again soon.